Take a network break. Pass around a platter of virtual donuts and strap in for our rocket ride through this week's tech news. We're going to talk about an advanced network backbone in China, a serious Fortinet vulnerability, more legal liability concerns around security breaches, Cisco financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should too. Palo Alto Networks wants to show you how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows you how NextGen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to XDX, go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event to see the replay. Uh, we don't have a tech bite today, so just a couple of promo uh, words about Packet Pushers. We have a Slack channel, packetpushers.net slash Slack. You can join for free. You can communicate with a bunch of other network engineers. You can ask questions, give answers, swap memes and just sort of commune with your peers. Uh, you can also check out Human Infrastructure. It's a free weekly newsletter where we collect quality technical blogs along with IT news, tech resources, and commentary from the Packet Pushers. You can sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. All right, let's dive into the news. China has announced the completion of an internet backbone that claims bandwidth speeds of 1.2 terabits per second. The backbone link stretches 3,000 kilometers or just over 1,800 miles. Uh, the backbone networks developed in partnership with Tsinghua University as well as Huawei, China Mobile, and an organization called CernNet Corporation. Yeah, this was sent to us by uh, by a reader. They sent us a link to an article, and I did some diving onto this. I think this is significant because we're talking about 1.2 terabits optical link over such a long distance, 3,000 kilometers or mm -hmm. 1,800 miles for those in um, using freedom measures. Um, and I think it, one of the things that we don't often do a lot is recognize what the Chinese are doing or, you know, at least admire the fact that they can go out and achieve these types of things. Um, and it is pretty significant that they build a 1.2 terabit optical link using Chinese equipment. So obviously Huawei's equipment has been used for that. We haven't seen the impact of the sanctions coming in. I'm not sure whether this is part of the sanctions of what, you know, in the geopolitical environment. But I would also point out um, I went and did some other searching to try and find out if there's any other 1.2 terabit links. Like, is this really outstanding, Drew? Is this like the first by a long way or is this whatever? I found an article for Ryzen on the 1st of November this this year. So just a few weeks ago, talking about their 1.2 terabit link, but it's only in a metro network. So it's not 3,000 miles. So it's not, you know, going through a long haul optical cable, undersea cable and going through repeaters and amplifiers and all that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. that is, you know, a real achievement. I mean, obviously for telcos, bragging rights around terabit is is kind of a thing, right? Sure. So, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I will note uh, that the announcement uh, calls out the fact that key software and hardware in the Backbone Network was developed domestically. So this uh, and the announcement came out just ahead of a meeting uh, between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese Premier uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, the U.S. has in place significant export restrictions on technology to China. So besides being a technological achievement, I think the announcement is also a political flex from China about their ability to develop advanced technology at mm -hmm. home. Uh, I think the timing of that release was not a coincidence. I don't know. I couldn't find anything on Huawei's website. So when I went to do a search on Huawei's website about this press release, it wasn't there. I could only find this in various pieces of press like the Chinese news um, and certain uh, very focused websites, very China-focused websites. So uh, I'm not sure I'd, I'd go down that far, Drew. It's possible, but I doubt it. I think it's just this is when the announcement came out. Perhaps, I, I think, considering that it was released by the official Chinese news agency, uh, Xinhua, I think that uh, uh, okay. the timing is <laughs> significant. <laughs> but we can uh, agree to disagree. That's fine. Fair enough. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. 
Uh, lots of links in the show notes if you want to uh, check up on it for yourself. We'll move on. Uh, Fortinet is warning of a serious vulnerability in its 40 seam product. The vulnerability rated a 9.8 out of 10 in severity by NIST lets an attacker execute unauthorized code or commands via specially crafted API requests, according to NIST. The vulnerability affects multiple software versions in the 4.7 to 5.3 ranges of the OS. Uh, Fortinet advises a software upgrade to mitigate the vulnerability. Yeah, this is this is real egg on face. I think it's disappointing that Fortinet isn't securing its security, which is when and I've been pretty critical about for Cisco about this. Although Cisco's got a long track record here, and right. repeatedly, like multiple times a year, I think. Would that yes. be fair? I think so, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes, and quite often, like schoolboy type, you know, coding failures, like in the web interface and so forth. Mm -hmm. But this one's equally the same. This is, uh, if you send a crafted packet, it will actually run a direct command injection. So you can actually inject commands directly into the seam. Once you've got command injection, of course, then you can write yourself a local admin and then connect to the box. Um, obviously, Seam is going to bring in your security information and event management. So it's going to collect all of the threat data that's coming off your network mm -hmm. and store it. And so if you can compromise this in theory, you would then go on to actually use other vectors to get inside and then a company would be blind to the fact that you got through, um, which is going to be a, a problem here. So I think, you know, reasons to be critical of, of Fortinet. However, I note that it was internally discovered and reported by someone from the Fortinet product security team. Uh -huh. And then obviously they've come out in public and stated that it happened. So they haven't tried to hide it which is something that we often see or downplay it, by the way. Right. They've roamed right up and said, this is a problem. This is what we've got to do. So maybe that's a positive on this. Yeah, it's never a good look for a security company to have uh, such a critical vulnerability, but it is always a good look for a security company or any company uh, to disclose the vulnerability and have mitigations in place. So yeah, egg mm. on the face, but they're trying to wipe it off quickly and, and I guess responsibly. Yeah, and they found it themselves. Ultimately, you know, it does yes. go back right also the way. Good. It goes back for, what, five years or six years of code. So it affects right the way back to version 4.7 of 40 OS um, in the scene product. So it is quite a thing. Yeah. Again, links in the show notes if you need to get more details. Uh, NVIDIA and Dell Technologies have announced new offerings to help their customers build generative AI applications on-prem. NVIDIA is offering uh, pre-trained models built on Llama 2 and Stable Diffusions, Excel, among others. Dell Technologies is offering pre-tested software and hardware to make it easier for customers to build chatbots and virtual assistants on-premises. Uh, and Greg, this uh, prompted some thinking from you about uh, how enterprises are going to consume AI. Yeah, well, I haven't talked a lot about AI outside of using AI in networking. So, you know, obviously Juniper Mist has been around for a while and we've seen it become, you know, standard feature of any sort of threat analysis and threat response. So I thought what's actually happening now is I think we're starting to see the way AI will, you know, be engaged in the enterprise, if that makes sense. So I'll just express some opinions here, subject to change, you know, strong opinions, loosely held, whatever. Uh -huh. But to me, it looks like the largest consumption of AI is going to be as a feature on existing products. So if you think something like autocorrect in a word processor or code assistant in GitHub. Uh -huh. So, and I think today those things were worth paying for, for those who want to pay for them. But I think in a period of time, a year or two, those features are just going to be free, right? So companies always try to make you pay more for a feature, but I think it's going to be like um, armpits. Everybody's got one. It's nothing special, just folded in. So um, I wouldn't rush into AI in some senses and pay $20 a month for chat GPT. I think ultimately that will all just be free. Um, but I would point out that this sort of, you know, using AI to enable a new feature 
like these, you know, very things, is that only works for generally applicable non-core activities, right? So if you want to create images and do some copywriting for marketing purposes, then you can make an AI that has a large enough audience to do that and and to, to charge money for it. And so we, if you wanted to do that, right now you're looking at products like Canva, for example, that will do image generation as a standard feature as part uh-huh. of its subscription. Uh-huh. It's not an uplift, it's just up out of the product, right? Right. Um, but we do have a, a first wave of AI product startups that are offering APIs a subscription, which enables them, of course, you know, they come up with an idea for uh, an AI in a particular, using it in a particular way. Quite often it's just a wrapper around chat GPT and they charge you to subscribe to them. And then the cost goes back to chat GPT plus the costs of their own to host it on the cloud. Now though, all of those startups have to build revenue before their funding runs out, but the underlying costs are very high. If they're paying chat GPT and they're just putting a wrap around it and then creating an API on top of that, and it's hosted on the cloud, the cloud's very expensive. So I think we're going to see a lot of these API as a subscription services are going to come and go pretty quickly. So we're going to see them rattled out. And of course, enterprises aren't going to be very interested in that because you know, if you go to a lot of effort to teach a bunch of people how to use this thing and then all of a sudden it disappears, well, that's a different sort of thing. So I think some of them will get limited use and maybe even a couple will succeed, Trey. Maybe even a couple of these, you know, AI startups that are doing API led, you know, with all the usual crypto hype that comes with them, you know, crypto like <laughs> hype of that goes with them. Maybe <laughs> not to be too sarcastic, but uh, it does feel like it. I guess my take is that I think we're seeing uh, organizations having concerns about uh, uploading uh, sensitive data that they want to build AI models around for internal use to a public cloud. One, it's expensive. Two, who knows if that data might leak. So being able to do it on-prem using some pre-trained models to make it easier for developers makes a lot of sense. Mm. Dell will happily sell you lots of hardware uh, if you want to do that on-prem. So I think I feel like this is yes. a response to, we mm-hmm. don't want to shunt a bunch of our data to use and sort of rent an AI uh, model in the cloud. We'd rather have it on-prem and NVIDIA and Dell stepping up to get some of that dollars because for some reason, corporations are interested, I think, in building AI chatbots and LLM tools uh, on their own corpuses of data for purposes, I I assume, like they're sitting on a ton of information. Mm. Maybe AI will be able to extract additional value out of it for internal searches, internal lookups, that kind of thing. So if you go back to what I said before, if you've got ChatGPT and you just put something around the top of it to make the queries to drive ChatGPT to give you what you want, Mm -hmm. well, you can do that on-premise. So NVIDIA... So the the topic here is that NVIDIA this week announced AI foundation models, which they call a curated collection of enterprise-grade pre-trained models to give developers a running start to bring in custom generative AI to their enterprise applications. So what the, the model here is that they're announcing foundation models. You can go and buy these from... NVIDIA, either as an API or I think on-prem if you've actually managed to get your hands on some of their hardware. Um, And that gives you like 80-20, right? Mm -hmm. It's a bit like developing with open source. Open source gives you 80% and then you have to develop the next 20% yourself sort of thing. And so you can either use those models and then strap something onto them so that you can query a model in your length. So you've got an LLM, you've got a a generative AI model around images or and then what you do is you do the last 20% to customize it for the purpose that you're your employer wants you to do right right? now nvidia wants to sell you those as an api and as i said maybe we'll see some on-prem but dell and hpe are offering on-premise ai bundles here uh, largely based on open source ai models that are available things like hugging face and llama from facebook and there's a bunch of others being generated out there 
And what we're seeing is Dell and HPE are saying, oh, it's a chance for us to sell a rack of servers, several racks of servers. Yes. Oh, we're going to be in on that, right? <laughs> That's absolutely what we can do. We can sell servers with GPUs in them that you can optimize. So they're jumping all over these models, uh, you know, to say, oh, we can bundle this up as AI for the enterprise and so forth. But I think there's value in that because it limits the cost of AI and brings it in-house. So you could start doing some iteration there, but you get the advantage that the first 80% of the models are done for you. Yes, and you can start to iterate forward. So, you know, the AI enterprises would use the foundation models in the same way that, you know, you have a code repository, you know, Python modules or Ansible modules, and you download them and then you do the last bit after that. So everybody needs an LLM for interaction. You need a diffusion model for image recognition and all that sort of stuff. And and I think that's probably going to be more popular than people think today. I think a lot of people think AI is super hard and da-da-da-da. It's actually not. It's no difficult, no more difficult then strapping Python and Ansible on top of, you know, um, Juniper Abstra, right? <laughs> if Juniper Abstra is already doing 80% of the lifting, writing some modules on top of that or the code on top of that, not particularly difficult. And that's, I think, is the direction that we're headed yeah. for AI in the enterprise, yeah. Uh, I noticed in the NVIDIA press release about NVIDIA's ready-made models, uh, NVIDIA says they are trained on, quote, responsibly sourced data sets. Uh, I'm noting responsibly sourced there. Uh, that kind of language doesn't end up in a public announcement by accident. Um, we're seeing growing uh, blowback from writers and artists about their works being used without permission to train AI models. So mm -hmm, I wonder if mm -hmm. tech companies offering services like this are considering potential liabilities down the road and NVIDIA is trying to get out in front of it. Well, I'm pretty sure if you put JetGPT in front of the company lawyer, he'd go like, hang on, this where did they get their data from and are we liable for any copyrights? Yes. Because JetGPT's terms and conditions say um, all care, no responsibility, which means that in somebody's always responsible, especially in American law. So if you use ChatGPT knowingly aware that this data was stolen from somewhere, you can become liable and somebody can bring a class action against you and then think. So if somebody like NVIDIA can give you a guarantee that it's responsibly sourced, then that's far more acceptable to most enterprises. It may or may not be responsibly sourced. But <laughs> yeah, my question is responsibly sourced actually meaningful or is it sort of the AI equivalent of all natural, which is a legally meaningless label gets slapped on all kinds of food products, I think. We'll wait and see how yeah. the lawyers test this out. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of organic food means it doesn't have chemicals in it, but it doesn't mean it's clean or safe, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yes, be careful of labels. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go, go a few layers deeper. So anyway, that's just some opinions there around AI. I just been waiting to sort of see how this crystallized. I couldn't, like, I think people will, you'll have a lot of dark IT where people are out signing up for AI, you know, various AI services and stuff. But at some point that's going to come under the ballywick of enterprise IT. You can't afford to have hundreds of subscriptions to dozens of different services and, and not get control. Uh, changing topics, uh, Aruba this week shipped some brand new WAN hardware, or should I say HPE Aruba Networking. Um, they announced their 9100 hybrid gateway that was announced this week. I think this is picking up on a thread that we've had for a few months now, Drew, maybe for a couple of years, actually, um, where we're seeing uh, in the press release they're quoting, extends enterprise services securely and seamlessly to large branch and small campus networks. So this is this convergence of campus and branch and SD-WAN and SD-Branch, uh -huh. and and this whole idea that you can buy one appliance and it'll go out and do tunnel and root orchestration, it'll do security, it'll do WAN management, so all that SD branch, SASE stuff, SSE. It's also a VPN concentrator to support remote work and client VPN if that's what you want, but it'll also manage the cloud-based wireless and the LAN-based Ethernet Right, So the, all the branch just becomes one physical appliance. Obviously, you'll need some Wi-Fi and some switches, but all the operation of that. Uh -huh. So 
I, it's good to see HP Aruba networking just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Getting on board with that trend and, you know, delivering more. It looks like this trend is now stable and we're seeing vendors producing products specifically targeting that large branch. They did the small branch a while ago. Now they're starting to pick up larger and larger campuses and larger and larger branches. So I think that the branch networking is going to be all in on this SD-WAN, SASE type environment with fully managed you know, Ethernet and wireless as a single thing. So all of that WAN, that that where we used to be, where the WAN was the WAN and the branch network was a branch network, and they were this, they were different things. Now they're all just one. Yeah, uh, SD branch, I think, still very popular because folks are coming back to the office, and that branch does need to be uh, protected and also able to connect to a variety of uh, data center hosted and uh, SaaS hosted yeah. services. I it's funny reading this. Uh, it feels like a press release from five years ago when SD branch was the hot thing and VPNs were a thing. <laughs> there's there's no no word here about SASE or ZTNA or anything. So it's a <laughs> I don't know how this slipped <laughs> through the marketing department without any of that. But uh, well, I think, I think they're really this is this is a product focused announcement. And yep. to me, the signal here is like to me, it seems like Cisco Enterprise is the last holdout where campus branch and SD WAN networks are separate things. They're not integrated. Mm -hmm. You have to go to each one of the business units and buy their product, and then you have to weld it together yourself. That's not Meraki, by the way. Meraki is very much about integrating it together, but Cisco Enterprise is still trying to sell you a router for this, an SD WAN for that, a branch network for this, a branch campus, a branch wireless wired Ethernet, a branch wireless, you know, campus wide, campus wireless overlays, secure, and it's all separate things. Things, right, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be. It can all just be one thing, and I think a lot of customers who are experiencing frustration with Cisco are finding that that lack of integrated product is a thing. So I'd say that HPE Aruba networking is part of that trend, but also they have a lot less to lose than Cisco does. Keep in mind that Cisco, by t you know today, those people live in vertical silos. Like I'm the campus network engineer, I'm the S the WAN engineer. Mm -hmm. For Cisco to break down those silos disrupts the relationship between customer and vendor. And customers might turn around and say, oh, well, it's time to reevaluate our relationship with Cisco. Or if it converges, does the does the net solution get cheaper or is there less product or something? Right. So Cisco's got a lot more to lose. And I think they won't change until the numbers tell force them to. All right, link in the show notes if you want to read up more about that new uh, HPE Aruba networking product. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches changed, your SD-WAN should too. You can join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event earlier this year. You can get the full replay of the event to see how NextGen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to SDX, go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to sign up for the replay or get the link in the show notes for this episode of Network Break, which is episode 456. Uh, moving on, Star, story about Starlink. Starlink has had uh, some issues lately. You're, and Greg, you're uh, raising the question, is Starlink actually suitable for business? Now just a, this is a quick observation. There was a bunch of things going on on Reddit, and there's some things that made the press. And in some of the Starlink uh, love sites that that go around, one of these is called Starlink Insider. Apparently, Starlink had a problem this week where it reset a bunch of accounts just 
randomly. And when I say some accounts, I mean thousands, uh. maybe tens of thousands. And these people were locked out of their Starlinks and then uh, Starlink was then no longer able to talk to them. And there's some suggestions that it might have been a hack attack or a DDoS or, you know, somebody was spamming those accounts and then they were locked out and things like that. But I think the challenge here is, yes, Starlink is an amazing service and it's got, you know, it's amazing to have public WAN access in most countries of the world with very short lead times, ease of installation and quite reasonable bandwidth at a not not an unreasonable cost, right? Right. But the downside here is that Starlink has nearly zero technical support. And and this sort of highlighted it to me that something was going wrong and no one from Starlink was available. You couldn't contact Starlink. You couldn't ring them up and ask for help. You couldn't send a message saying there's something wrong with my account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a lot of very frustrated people saying, well, what do I do now? And I was just thinking like, if I'm a business customer, what have I got? If I'm using Starlink as an SD-WAN and it goes down, what am I going to do? People are going to be on the phone saying, what can you do? You can just say like, ah, it's Starlink. They don't have a support team. There's nothing we can do until it comes back. When will that happen? We don't know, right? That's not business grade, right? Um, I can't confirm if business customers get better support than that. I don't believe they do because I don't believe that um, Starlink has sufficient funds to spend on building a tech support function. But it just leads me to the question, is Starlink ready for business if they're not going to give these sorts of features? If, so you just have to accept that it's not business grade. Maybe you just use it and say, that's that's what I've got. Right. I think it's important to take that into your calculations, that it may not have the yeah. support you require for critical issues. So uh, maybe as a backup or an emergency, but uh, keep that in mind as you're evaluating Starlink for business connectivity. Well, when you're sitting in front of the CIO going, we're just going to use Starlink. Don't get too over, don't oversell it too hard. Just right. say like, <laughs> I think that was a thought in my mind. I had my mind of sitting in front of the CIO saying, oh yeah, we'll just get some Starlink. It'll be fine. Everybody says it's great. It's great. And then Six months later, it's down for a month for no reason that you can, and nobody wants to talk to you. And you're like, I don't know. What do we do now? I don't know. <laughs> yes. Not the scenario you want to be in. No, not at all. Hmm. All right. Our next couple of stories touch on, I guess, our, Craig, it feels like our years long debate on this show about whether security matters. Uh, first, a criminal hacking gang has reportedly filed an SEC complaint against one of its targets for not disclosing a security incident of material impact. The criminal gang claims to have breached a company called Meridian Link and then demanded a ransom to not publicly dump the data they say they grabbed. When Meridian Link didn't respond to the demand, the attackers went to the SEC. This is because new SEC rules, which are coming into effect in December, require public companies to disclose security incidents within four business days after determining the incident has a material impact. I think it is hilarious that the criminal is going to the cops to say, hey, did you know what these guys got broken into? <laughs> it's hysterical. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Anyway, so the, the ransomware gang ALFV, so A-L-F-V, A-L-P-H-V, mm -hmm. um, they claim that they were able to breach Meridian Link and exfiltrate a number of files and they were demanding a ransom. Uh, apparently Median Link got back to them, Meridian Link got back to them and said, we're investigating to determine if anything was indeed exfiltrated uh -huh. because it's not unknown for gangs to make claims which may later prove to be false, right? That's Good surprise, money. surprise. Go in, just make the claim, <laughs> right. get free money, right? <laughs> Admirable, make a try. And so far, and up until today, as far as best I can tell, Meridian Link continues to maintain that nothing was taken. I think Alpha v, Alpha v seems to have been quite smart here, and they've decided to lodge an SEC whistleblower complaint, complaining that Meridian Link is conducting securities fraud by not notifying the SEC <laughs> and for not paying the ransom, Drew. Both of them, right? <laughs> A, they should have... <laughs> 
uh, as you note, the the period, the four day notice period, doesn't actually take effect for another couple of months. So maybe Meridian Link is off the hook. And of course, the SEC may or may not take action here. Just because you lodge a whistleblower complaint doesn't mean that the SEC will necessarily take this up and take action. It's their call. But it is very much a bad look if you fail to notify the SEC within the prescribed time. And my understanding is that it's now sort of regarded as standard practice to notify the SEC within four days because most US companies are very terrified of an SEC investigation. Right. So they're not waiting for December. So don't get over-rotated on that. Um, but I think now that we've seen this, Drew, now that we've seen this, we're going to see it again, right? It's part of the if playbook one now. Way that, totally part yeah, of the playbook now. Totally part of the playbook. So you, I think if you're the CISO and you're watching threat response or incidents response, you're rolling an incident response, and then you get you know that you've got four days from the time that the claim comes in before you've got to say something to the SEC. So that's going to change the game. I think it's substantially. I mean, it really does add a new wrinkle to the whole ransom package. It's not just we have your data or we have the encryption key, the decryption key you need to uh, unlock the data we encrypted. It's also mm -hmm. we will rat you out to the SEC if you're a publicly traded company and you could be liable for securities fraud. So, uh, yeah, a whole <laughs> new weapon in the arsenal of the ransomware mm -hmm. folks, which is both hilarious and terrifying. <laughs> Well, it's going to be interesting because this week also, uh, this is something that's not in the notes, Drew. Maybe we should put something in. But SolarWinds, we talked about SolarWinds being under investigation by the SEC. Mm -hmm. And this week, they lodged a counterclaim against the SEC saying that you have no jurisdiction to investigate cybersecurity breaches. Which is, uh, you know, like... Good luck with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you know, wake up and let's go with violence. You know, if you're going to excuse exactly. me, you might I'm as gonna... well. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, you know, saying, yes, sir, three bags full, sir. I absolutely, you know, please spank me a little bit harder sort of thing. They absolutely went back and said, no way. It's, you know, you can... You could... I am not at all sure that that is a smart thing to do. Uh, I, I don't think SolarWinds is going to exist in its current form for much longer. Provoking the SEC in that sort of a way is probably just an expensive way to go broke, as far as I can tell. But they are trying to sell themselves. There's various rumors out there that SolarWinds is in trouble. Uh, sales are dropping, brand is getting damaged, and they are looking to sell themselves to somebody. So be ready for that if you're a SolarWinds customer. So given that these SEC requirements are coming into place, I just want to put this idea out there to the universe, to whoever might be listening, security vendors, lawyers, whoever. My pitch here is to take your SIEM or your XDR product and configure it to automatically file SEC paperwork for every event above a certain threshold. <laughs> you just fire off that paperwork, disclose everything, flood the zone, uh, and mm -hmm. the reason I'm proposing this is because security teams know what happens with a noisy IDS. Eventually, you stop paying attention. I think if you can use that principle, <laughs> you can exhaust yes. the attention of stock analysts and the SEC. So just, just yeah. a suggestion. Let's, let's see if anybody takes me up on it. I think the other angle here is the engagement. The CISO is going to have to be engaged with the, the company lawyer. Oh, yeah. And with the CEO and with the board, right? If you have to go and lodge a piece of paper to say there's a ransomware, then all of a sudden the CISO jumps over the CIO. This is what we were talking about last week, right? Mm -hmm. Because if there is a if there is a breach or if there's a claim of a breach now, not even a real breach, just a claim of a breach, and you've got less than four days to prove whether they actually got in or not, and they actually either, you know, exfiltrated data. In this right. case, if you exfiltrate data, material, you've got to- yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing there is that you've then got to go to the board and say, I have to lodge this notice on the SEC. That just shifts the whole cybersecurity thing on its head, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the company lawyer is going to be engaged. You know, <laughs> it's the council's going to be reading the submission. The CEO has to sign off on the submission. And shareholders are going to know there's going to be calls. There's going to be like cats and dogs living together. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so I think, you know, maybe security, I don't want to say it's, it matters yet because I still think it's a little early, but all the signs are that the astrology is starting to change and, and that, uh, you know, Mars is coming into the, into the quadrant. <laughs> So in a related story, the chief information security officer at Clorox has reportedly stepped down from the company after a serious network breach. That's according to the register. And then Reuters is reporting that the breach affected the company's ability to fulfill orders for more than a month, which ended up lowering the company's revenue forecast. Uh, so again, the CSO had to step down. This is reinforcing my point that uh, CISOs are now just sacrificial corporate lambs if there's a major intrusion, particularly one that affects revenue. So uh, take that into your consideration if you're up for this kind of a role. Yeah, so the, the I think the big thing here is that the financial impact of this breach was substantial. The company yep. reported a 20% year-on-year drop in sales for the first quarter of fiscal 2024, amounting to a $356 million decrease in sales. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's real money, Drew. It That's is. not imaginary security dollars. That's like, you know, how much, it, how much per hour does an outage cost? This is like, you know. Hard sales down. And then they say, additionally, they incurred expenses of $24 million for IT recovery, forensic experts, and other professional services. And Clorox acknowledged that they will anticipate further expenses related to the breach in future periods. In other words, overhauling their security and taking steps to, to beef it up is going to cost them even more money. <laughs> right? right? So. I think there's a few things going on here. Uh, the, per, the 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 CISO that they hired, she was only in the job from June 2021, so two years, two and a half years, say. Uh -huh. And is that enough time to turn around your IT security function? Right. We have no uh, idea right? what the state of Clorox's uh, security uh, systems were when she arrived and how they were uh, on her departure. But yes, I, we I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus because who knows what the internal organization was like um, and what kind of uh, show she was walking into. Yeah. Like for me, it would probably be like three months to get your feet under, start doing an analysis, three months to work up where the weaknesses are. You're probably going to have to go for a budget and start a project that's six months. And it's going to take way more than a year to work your way through implementing and overhauling a security policy. Yep. So if you're going to be a CISO, make sure that the sign-on bonus covers this, the exit out, the, the ignominious exit. Exactly. You know I mean? Totally. <laughs> so. I mean, understand that your role is to be chucked out the window if there's a problem. So make um, account for that in your uh, salary negotiations. Yeah. So apparently Clorox's manufacturing operations were disrupted for several weeks and products weren't getting to the shelves. That's why the sales were down. Yeah. A group known as Scattered Spider was suspected in the security breach, although it's not known for sure. Um, obviously, at the seaside. Now, one thing that I note here, Drew, is that I got some of this information from a Forbes article. Uh -huh. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not a fan of Forbes. I think generally that it's uh, that most of its content is questionable. Uh, but one author over there was very proud to say the consumer products giant spent over 500 million on IT upgrades and earned a spot on the 2023 Forbes Most Cybersecure Companies list. <laughs> I wouldn't be bragging about that. I'd be questioning. I would also be questioning. <laughs> the process that gets on the most cybersecure companies list, and then <sighs> that company has a massive massive failure of cybersecure. I wouldn't be bragging that my process, my cybersecure list is not very good, right? But anyway. <laughs> Boy, and just think about the message that sends through the industry, 500 million on IT upgrades, uh, and you still lost a job, still got breached, still lost 356 million uh, in revenue over a quarter because of the breach. Um, uh, that's So 
Well, I get my big takeaway is that security does now mean something, but my concern is that rather than better manage risk, organizations mm. are, in my opinion, more likely to focus their efforts on mitigating liability than they are on making mm. things more secure. I, I want to ask about that 500 million. Is that the total budget over two years? That right. sounds more realistic, right? Right. That's, That's a not, big number. <laughs> 500 million just on upgrades is like setting off my, mm, uh -huh. no. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's really, no, you didn't spend half a billion dollars on upgrading your IT that's that's just not right. Yeah. So I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Again, that's why I question Forbes articles. They quite often come up with quite unsustainable um, claims like this that don't even pass a, a sane test. So, yeah, but still pretty funny. They made the Forbes most secure cyber <laughs> cyber secure companies list. You could probably take that and get a pay rise out of that, Drew. I'm Probably assuming can. that that $500 million mm. number was sort of the number that they felt they needed to get on that list. Uh, so that's why they yeah. floated it out there because they wanted to be on the list because it made them look good. Yeah. Now, well, uh, they must be proud of themselves now. <laughs> well done. <laughs> spend, well done all around. If they spent $500 million and then lost $234 million, still feels <laughs> like they're down $750 million, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's bad. All right, our last story for the day uh, is Cisco. They reported their Q1 financial results. The company took in revenues of $14.7 billion, up 8% year-over-year. Net income was $3.6 billion, up 36% year-over-year. Cisco says these results set a company record for revenue and profitability for one quarter. However, financial results are about the past, and Wall Street is about the future. Cisco says it saw a slowdown in new product orders in Q1 as customers implement and install products that came in previously, meaning the outlook for the next couple of quarters isn't as bright as Q1, and of course, uh, its share price fell. Yeah, it's 10% less brighter, Drew, um, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is quite significant. You don't tell the you know, you don't tell investors that your 2024 numbers are going to be this, and then suddenly say, oh no, we missed it by 10%, and we're going to restate them, and they're going to be much lower. So, of course, Cisco's share price fell by 12%. It's sort of had a bit of a buyback. People are sort of coming back in thinking that it's cheap. So at around $47, $46, people are thinking that it's cheap and you've seen some buy people getting back into the shares. But I noticed that at time of thing that they're falling again. I think this has really destroyed a lot of confidence in investors for Cisco. Uh, the story that they offered here with that there was a large COVID backlog that has now been cleared uh -huh. and that enterprises have now stopped buying products because they've now got so much product, they now need time to install it. How's that sound to you, Drew? Compelling? That's a story we've been hearing from multiple vendors. Yeah, not very compelling. So uh, I note that nearly 50% of Cisco's revenue now comes from subscriptions. So it says that it's now of its 50 billion a year that it roughly takes uh, in revenue. Uh, 24 billion of that is now subscriptions or recurring revenue, which is what uh, turned Cisco into a cloud company. You make your own judgment. So long-term Cisco says that its revenue returns to pre-COVID levels with low growth. So where Cisco has been moving along at around 14 billion, 14.2 billion a quarter, now that's going to drop back to its 12 to 12.2 billion a quarter, which is definitely not what investors want. I think there's a takeaway here, Drew, which is if you're negotiating a largish deal with Cisco and you're negotiating directly, you should be able to push hard for extra extra discounts here. So they're very sensitive to revenue, uh -huh. and <laughs> you should be. And their profit margin was way up. The profit margin was up to sixty-seven point one percent, which is wow. up a lot from sixty-five percent. Yeah, that's the gross margin, not the net. So I think Cisco's going to say they've got some movement on the profitability. You could probably push hard for extra discounts at you out there. I noticed also that Chuck Robbins said a lot of customers are saying it's hard to install Cisco products. What he didn't say was, we're going to make it easier to install and operate our products, which, <laughs> which I, 
Um, it's so funny because that was a big message of uh, a Cisco Live a couple of shows back where mm-hmm. I think we talked about the Meraciization of uh, Cisco in its strategy toward making the products easier to use. I guess uh, Mr. Robbins missed an yeah. opportunity there. And it was a real problem because I've been in some user forums for Cisco people and the amount of active dislike for Cisco subscription licensing and just how complex and how difficult it is to work with it mm-hmm. is really generating a lot of negative feeling, a lot of negative sentiment. Mm-hmm. And I've never really worried about it because like, you know, engineers are always going to complain about something. But I really think that the the subscription program is so dysfunctional that Cisco is actually losing customers. Now, I hear from people who say, yeah, we gave up Cisco because the licensing was just unsustainably and in, in time intensive and pointless. It doesn't do anything. I mean, and as a sales tool, you know, if the customer is spending all their time working on Cisco licensing, they're not out talking to competitors. But at some <laughs> point that collapses, right? Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a Cisco sales tactic, right? Yeah, I can Part believe of the it. reason that Cisco used to have one of it, you know, lots of different models was so that customers would be out talking to Cisco about which model, you know, mm-hmm. if you've got five models of campus switch, then you can have a, a long discussion about which one of these models is yours. And then the customer doesn't go to talk to a competitor. That's why cars have different models of the same, sure. doing the same thing, mm-hmm. same thing, right? Yeah. So um, I, I, I'm not so sure that Cisco's going to recover. Cisco's sort of saying, this is just a short-term thing, we're going to come back. Most analysts regard, say that Cisco remains in good shape and it'll be fine in the longer term. But some have been pointing out that Cisco's saying that sales will continue at elevated levels, and now they're saying the opposite, obviously. What I also point out is that Cisco's market capitalization is now only $195 billion. A year ago, it was a $250 billion company. Mm. Now, admittedly, Cisco has been buying back a lot of shares, but its market capitalization is getting a lot smaller. So it is now, or as of today with this share reevaluation, literally only three times the size, less than three times the size of Palo Alto Networks. Let mm. that sink in. Mm. Interesting. Mm. And Fortinet as well. So like Fortinet, only Fortinet is only one quarter the size of a Cisco. So Cisco is only four times larger than a, than a Fortinet. I really feel like, you know, that there's something happening here and it's just ticking along underneath. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and how Cisco handles this and how investors and customers, you know, play this out in the future. Yeah. Well, don't forget 2024 Cisco is uh, acquiring Splunk. So we'll see that juicy Splunk revenue start to roll in. Maybe that'll help make things a little better. (laughs) Yeah. But that doesn't close until Q3 2024. Right. That's a long way out. That is a long way out. Yeah. mm -hmm. All right. Well, that wraps up our uh, news portion of the show. And in fact, that wraps up the whole show. Uh, so we're done. Greg, where can folks get more from you online if they they want to get in touch? Um, I'm winding back my presence on Twitter. I'm finding it more and more distressing to be there. So mostly if you want to, if you're following me on Twitter, because I posted links and, and various commentary, you'll probably see that in the human infrastructure newsletter, which is packetpushes.net slash newsletter to subscribe. Comes into your email inbox every week. It's free. It's not free from sponsorship. We respect your privacy. It's only a little bit of sponsorship. It's not. We're mostly just doing it for the love, for the fun. We have a little bit of sponsorship to get some cost recovery. So sign I'm, up for that. Comes into your inbox. Yeah, I'm very proud of the ratio between content and sponsorship in the newsletter. So if you're interested, check it out. And mm. uh, you're also pretty active on the Packet Pushers uh, Slack channel, uh, which is also free. So uh, that's yeah. another option. That may or may not be a feature. Right. <laughs> 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 Your mileage may vary. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'm Drew Connery Murray. I'm on Blue Sky as Drew CM, uh, and I've got invites if you want to come join me over there. I'm also spending more time on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Network Break. Uh, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That would really help or recommend it to a colleague or friend. As always, thanks for listening.